Romans chapter 8, we'll begin in verse 18, though our focus today will be on 23, 24, and 25. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. Why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Well, it's happened again, right? Familiar images have flooded our TV screens, backdrop of a school, shots to grieving parents, distraught and frightened students. And after the initial reporting of, uh, of yet an, another act of gun violence, uh, and, and after the, 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 seer, the scene plays out, eventually we begin to see pictures. Pictures of those who've died. And we hear again from yet another set of parents and another set of students and teachers as they try and deal with the aftermath of what would be such a horrific and frightening event. And along with this, Along with the fear and the anxiety and the concerns over what has happened, there is then the inevitable questions. How did this happen? And then even they ask the next one, why does this keep happening? It's at this point that the typical worldview operating in the world around us, the, the basic frameworks people use to try and understand life and try and understand death and try and understand suffering and pain, this is where it really falls apart. It's in moments like these, and, and these have we've seen going back really since 1999 and those first Two young men who walked into that school in Colorado. And and, and since then, this has just kind of become a a part of of the news cycle. And it seems to be ramping up. And and with people asking, how do we deal with this? Their worldview fails them. They'll bring up gun control. 
And understand my concern here is not to make an argument related to gun control. However, I can tell you the problem isn't the gun. It's the person holding it. This is where the problem resides. But but yet we'll say, no, this is what we need to do. Get rid of every gun that you can, and guess what? Ugly, evil people will still do ugly, depraved things to others. Won't get rid of suffering. Uh, Some may then cry out for better mental health. What we need are better counselors. We need we need more psychology, psychiatry. We, we, we need to have those who can identify the problems and be able to address them. You could have a counselor for every student in the world. And if they are using the typical psychology paradigm of today, their ability to stop the evil in the human heart is about as effective as our ability to pick the church up and throw it in the news river. It's just not going to work. Maybe security is the issue. Maybe we need better security, and this then will, will help us deal with the threat But it misses a massive problem. The threat isn't always from those on the outside. In other words, at every turn, at every attempt to try and answer the question, why is this happening? Why is it happening again? Trying to pick out all the societal ills. And again, understand, I'm not suggesting some of these, well, I I wouldn't encourage worldly forms of psychology, but I'm not suggesting there couldn't be some things done to help you know, make for safer environments. But I am suggesting this typical worldview fails because it fails to address what is the core problem in all of humanity and in all of the world. We and the universe around us is badly broken. In fact, it's not just that the culture doesn't work it's, it's not just that we, we find these, these problems around us. Listen, church, sin is not merely a blemish on the skin. Sin is a life-destroying plague and disease that kills everything it touches. And it pervades... Every atom in the universe, every molecule is affected by the fall. The natural world, humanity, everything is influenced by this. And in fact, if we're going to try and figure out how we can struggle through the suffering and pain, the uncertainty of life, how do we deal with life's trials, How is it that we can manage to endure through what can be really dark days? It requires an abandonment of the world's worldview and an embrace of the biblical worldview. See, the good news is we do have a framework for understanding this stuff. We do have a way to try and understand when bad things happen, whether 
a, a national event such as this or the personal ones that we find ourselves struggling through, we do have a means of struggling through it. The Bible gives us, I think, very clear instruction, though not necessarily easy, and no better place than Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30, this is exactly what Paul is doing for us. And it may interest you to know, fear, anxiety, concern, trial, suffering, it's not new to the 21st century, right? This is not something brand new. We're not facing things that no one else has ever faced before. Oh, maybe the method and type may be different, but first century Christians understand the same fear and anxiety, except they added one more. They could be fed to the lions because of their faith in Christ. That's literal, by the way. You and I probably don't face that in our day-to-day lives. Not that I know of. You let me know if you do. I mean, my guess is we're not really facing that kind of a threat. But along with all the other suffering in the world, which you can imagine, these folks in Rome are also suffering persecution. So Paul makes certain to address how the gospel addresses suffering. It's not just some kind of theological, head-centered concept that we need to, you know, understand. The gospel should pervade every part of our lives. It, It influences everything. It is the most practical of information available, and it helps us deal with what is the suffering and hurt of life. And so Paul provides clear instruction to the folks in Rome about this by by showing the reality of present suffering, contrasting it with the future glory to come, and then giving this, this, this clear affirmation that in the meantime, we can trust God with whatever we're facing because God will see us through to the end. That's why these series of sermons are entitled, Suffering, Salvation, and the Sovereignty of God. And so in these verses, Paul is laying out for us what I think are at least six truths that help us wrestle with our, with our own suffering and our own difficulties with this particular topic. Now, we've already looked at three of them, and we're kind of taking one a week here. So we've already looked at three. We looked at the first one, and that is that our present suffering really is the path to future glory. In other words, Paul begins by just clearly, forthrightly addressing the fact that life does hurt, and it's going to hurt. Salvation is not an inoculation against pain. Salvation doesn't immunize you against hardship. This is the nature of things. We will face these things and others in the future in this life. Suffering is the, the path that we're on taking us to future glory. Then we also looked at the second one where, where Paul then really pushes forward with this idea, making it plain. Not only is it the path that we're on in suffering taking us to glory, that glory is incomparably greater than the suffering that we're facing. In other words, these are, it's not like we have a glory to come that is equal in its blessing to the suffering that we endure in this life. The glory to come is infinitely greater. Let me add one other bit here. The glory to come is not only infinitely better than your worst day, it is infinitely better 
than your best day. Think about the best day you've ever had in your life. Think about that day where everything worked right. Maybe you've, maybe you've never had that, right? Right, where, where uh, spouses are in perfect agreement and there's great joy. The kids don't even have to be told what to do. They just do it almost telepathically, right? And, and, and you, get a, you get a windfall. You didn't even buy a lottery ticket, but you win a bazillion dollars, all right? And, pastor, some, and somebody right now is thinking, should somebody tell them there's no such thing as bazillion uh, don't worry, my oldest son will tell me. All right, so you, you win. All of a sudden, you have this windfall of money. Life is good. And you've got a 25-week vacation in front of you. You might as well be homeless and on the streets compared to glory. You can't even begin to compare how much greater it will be. So Paul really... And it doubles down on that. In fact, this is of such a longing. This is, there, is, there is such a great thing to come that, number three, Paul says creation longs for it. Paul personifies creation for us and says creation groans and, and moans and grieves because it's, it's in futility subjected to this curse. Creation doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Creation longs to be what it was in the Garden of Eden. It does not work this way. One day it will work this way, but it won't work this way until final redemption, final glory. Until then, creation's longing, anticipating for this to happen. Well, this leads us to number four. Paul's now going to make a comparison. He's going to say, so as creation groans, so do we. Like creation, we groan in hope for the future promise. We groan in hope, the future promise. So let's flesh out, beginning in verse 23. So we can tell he's transitioning here to something, to a new focus, but connected to the previous one, because he begins by saying, not only that, it's one of Paul's favorite kind of phrases, he does this a lot, so he makes a comment, he makes a point, a strong point. The reason we should long for glory is because even creation knows it's better than anything that we can have in this life. But not only that. Understand there's an even better understanding here. There's a, there's a greater point to be made. I think I've used this kind of analogy before. It's like the guys on late night TV selling you a knife, right? Or a, apparently a pillow that's miraculous and giving you sleep, right? You get this knife that'll, that'll cut a, a tire in half, but not only that, Buy now, and we'll give you 37 more for free. All right? So this is, this is kind of what he's doing. He's ramping up the language. Not only is that true, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Creation is personified. Paul's not suggesting it actually has that kind of a soul or that kind of a mind or that kind of sentient, you know, sense of things. Paul's just using that as an analogy and illustration. Just as Jesus said, the, you know, if you don't, if, God, if the people don't praise, the rocks will cry out, all right? So this kind of personification, he's saying, so really, that's just a way of thinking about this. 
And to know that you also, we know that we as believers, as those who are suffering still, though we are forgiven of our sins, we have not fully come out from under the day-to-day realities of the curse. We groan as well. We suffer through it. We find ourselves in the same situation and we groan and eagerly wait for our own redemption. Now, let me make a comment here about that phrase. We also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So Paul's making a really important identification there. When he calls us those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, this takes us back to Old Testament imagery. The first fruits was, the, that was a reference to the first harvest. It happened in the springtime, uh, and, and in fact, there was a festival. The people were to recognize the festival of first fruits. It was part, by the way, it was connected with Passover uh, and uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in the midst of that, interestingly enough, about 2,000 years ago, it happened on a Sunday. You know what else happened a few thousand years ago on a Sunday, a couple thousand? The resurrection, all right? And so the Bible refers to Jesus' resurrection as a type of first fruits. Why is a reference to first fruits matter? Well, if they see the first fruits coming, what does that mean? There are just murmuring. That's all I get. All right, I understand. Okay, all right. There are more fruits to come. So Jesus is described as the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. What does that mean? There's going to be more fruits of resurrection. Who's he referring to? You. That's right. Always known you were fruity. All right, this proves it. All right, yeah. You are, we are going to be second fruits. We are going to be evidence there was more to come. There's going to be a resurrection for us. But Paul uses the reference to first fruits here in regard to the Holy Spirit. Same kind of language, except a bit more personal in that what he means here is to say, as believers, we possess what are the first fruits of the Spirit. Meaning we have the Spirit in us. This is Romans chapter 8. This is the point of the entire chapter. That the, because of the gospel, we have the indwelling power, presence, encouragement of the Spirit. And that is like a first fruit. Ephesians puts it this way, he is the guarantee of a future inheritance. The language that's been used in this context is to say the Holy Spirit serves as a down payment of a greater reward to come. And so, so Paul, in the context here of this teaching on suffering, is reminding these believers, we groan, we long for redemption, But understand, we do so not like creation. Creation just has to grin and bear it. Creation just has to suffer all along until the end time. It's not like creation can't get saved. You know that, right? In other words, when you go home, don't go out to the tree outside and preach the gospel to it, okay? It's not going to be freed from the curse. It's not going to be saved. Well, I mean, you could if you want to practice, all right? But that's not, it's not going to get saved. You can't walk down here to the Noose River and, and play a sermon on the gospel. The Noose River is not going to get saved. All right. So the distinction's clear. 
Creation has to suffer under the curse. You and I, though we are still plagued by it, do not suffer under it as creation does. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. Spirit is in us, which not only gives us strength and encouragement now, it also points to the fact that a final fulfillment is coming. A greater harvest is to come. That these first fruits, that in the Spirit, I can begin to resist sin and live in faith and endure through suffering. This is merely a a sign of greater stuff to come. This is part of the means in which I think the believer should understand his or her suffering. By the way, I, I think something like this does also verify an, an issue that will probably come up again. I just want to make it plain. Because Paul says that, that we, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan, meaning we suffer, we struggle, under what is the the weight of sin and sin's curse in the world, we have the first fruits as a way of reminding us that believers, God-loving, Jesus-serving, Bible-toting believers will suffer. And, And I say that, and I hope and pray I say it as an encouragement. That may sound weird, right? You may think, oh, that doesn't sound very encouraging. But I do say it as an encouragement to say this, because one of the first difficulties you may encounter when days get dark is you begin to ask the question, do I really belong to God in the first place? Does He recognize me? Does He know me? Is He aware of me? We find ourselves struggling even at the most basic level of salvation itself at times. I think Paul's words then are instructive. There's no reason to doubt your salvation just because you're suffering. No, even we who have the first fruits, we face it. So, are you ready for this? You ready for some... This is not your typical feel-good, all right? And I don't know if this is going to be helpful. How do you then deal with suffering? Even we ourselves groan. When life gets dark, when your heart is heavy, when things become painful, at least part of your response is to groan. Let me free you from something. While I should trust God in the midst of any circumstance that I go through, you should trust God and His goodness and His grace to you, whatever you may be facing. You don't have to like everything that happens to you. It's okay to be frustrated, hurt, And even angry when life gets ugly. Paul says we groan. We groan within ourselves. It's the same word. It is is this inward 
kind of, of, of angst. Uh, again, almost like this frustration, this sense of this is not right. And let me tell you, church, it is not right. None of this is right. This is what we talked about a few weeks ago. Even the things that we think are most beautiful in this world, even the things that we think are most glorious, fall short of God's original intent for them. This is not right. This is not your best life. Don't expect it to be, by the way. Don't get caught up in the American dream believing if I could just have the right elements around me, I'll finally be happy and I'll never have a hard day again. Don't get caught up in the idea of materially, resource speaking, or circumstances of life. If I can just put all my ducks in a row, then all my ducks will quack when I want them to, right? If I, could just, if I just get everything the way I want it. No, this life doesn't work. It doesn't work right. Not think, things are broken. It's broken at every level. And so we need to recognize, I think, a very viable, real response to suffering It's to groan. It's to cry. It's to cry out to God. I'm not talking about despair and despondency and anxiety, but I am talking about acknowledging the reality of hurt in this life. I don't think there's anything wrong with this. I don't think there's anything wrong having this this deep inward understanding that you really should be dissatisfied with the way things work. Because again... It don't work right. Now, it probably is important also to understand at this point, when we suffer, there could be two reasons why we're suffering. In other words, there could be two aspects to it. Sometimes we suffer because we've sinned, all right? We've sinned. In other words, we violated what God has said. We face consequences for that. And so we find ourselves suffering because of something we have explicitly, intentionally done. Or maybe not done. Nonetheless, it it is something that has violated what God has said for His people, and so we find ourselves suffering. If that's the case, part of your groaning should then be repenting. The good news is, is you're covered in the grace and love and blood of Jesus Christ. Sins are forgiven, and, and it's not that all the consequences will go away, but nonetheless, you can find yourself restored back into fellowship with God. But sometimes what you face is not the direct result of any fault of your own. It isn't because you did something wrong. Isn't that what you do to yourself? Did you find yourself hurting and your first question to God is, what did I do wrong? You remember a guy named Job? Job and his, and I'm going to use air quotes, not, you know, I guess that's no longer a thing, but I'm going to. So Job and his friends, right? These friends who are knuckleheads, all right? You go back and read Job, you'll find out. These guys, they do good at first, they just sit with him and they cry, all right? They heap ashes on their heads as a sign of mourning. I'm glad we don't do that one anymore, okay? I prefer the casseroles or a much better way, all right, for us to deal with our suffering and death. That's much, much better, okay? So they sit quiet and they just, they just grieve with him. And then they start shooting accusations at him. They, to sum it up, It's kind of what they are agreeing on, at least some of them to a degree. Job, you must have done something wrong. You must have failed God. 
you've offended God. Brother, what I'd do is I'd get on your knees and I'd beg him to stop beating you up for whatever thing you did. Come clean, Job. And Job's response is to say, in essence, I know I'm not a perfect man or without my faults, but in essence says, I, I did nothing. I did nothing. You know, the disciples even have this worldview at work, don't they? Well, when, when a particular man who has a particular affliction, and the question that's asked, what did this man do? What did his parents do? What, did, what, what was done that resulted in God executing such judgment? It's a faulty view of suffering. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Now, granted, God does judge, all right? There's a variety of ways in which God may judge. And there, again, there are consequences for sin. We don't deny that. But sometimes what we face, we face just because creation's broken, we're broken, people around us are broken. And so we struggle, we groan. But now, we don't just groan in cynicism and despondency, right? Because then he adds to that, we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We deal honestly and openly and and realistically with the pain that we might be suffering through, but we do it with an eager anticipation. Again, like we said a few weeks ago about creation, eager anticipation, the, the craning of the neck to look at something amazing that's going to happen. It is that kind of anticipation, that holding of the breath for something amazing to take place. He's saying this is how we groan. We groan, we deal honestly and openly with the suffering that we might be facing, honest with God, honest with one another. But we do so with an eye toward our final redemption. Paul says our our final adoption. By the way, don't be confused here. We've, we've talked already about the language of adoption. We have been adopted as sons of God. But our adoption, though certain and finished, is not completely fulfilled. So there, there is a fulfillment to our adoption coming, which he describes as the redemption of the body. In other words, the day that is coming when we will finally be freed from this physical existence. Paul does the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to say how he groans, we groan in this body, longing for the habitation that is in heaven. We long to unclothe ourselves with this tent that we might put on our heavenly body. We want to get out from under what is this sin-stained flesh. Because in fact, this... It is in this context that we find ourselves dealing with suffering in the first place. And so he says, so we have this eager anticipation that a greater adoption is coming, a greater redemption is coming. And then Paul adds to this by saying, for we were saved in this hope. We've known this all along. We were saved in this reality. Saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. I I, I love how Paul then brings us back here to to what I think is is a fundamental part of all of this, and that is the language of hope. And when I say hope, I'm not talking about wishful thinking. You know, when people say hope today, 
It's kind of the way they talk about hope. All right? I hope Tennessee will have a good football team. That is wishful thinking. All right? Okay? Well, you state and Carolina fans know what I'm talking about. All right, so. That's right. Watch yourself. You're going to laugh at me. You better watch. All right? Man, you never know when I may just get snarky for a second. All right. We use it that way, though, right? I, we use the word hope in kind of a shallow. I'm not saying you can't use it that way in some context, but that, we often use it that way to speak of some kind of wish, something that we would like to see happen. That's not how the word hope is used here. Hope is not in the Bible something, well, if all of the elements line up just right, if the circumstances just so happen to fit, if, if we get the right recruits and good coaching, all right, it'll all happen and come together, and all these things we've ever wanted will happen. When the Bible uses the word hope, the Bible uses a term that speaks to an absolute, deep and abiding confidence that everything God has said will happen will happen, and we can live today as if it already has. That's something much, much different. And so, and so Paul makes the point, this, we were saved in this hope. When you were saved, you didn't receive everything promised in salvation. You were saved, not only in knowing that your sins are forgiven, you're made right with God, and we get a ton of blessings and resources as a result of that now. We enjoy it now. That's not all that we were promised. There's a greater promise to come. There's a greater fulfillment to come. We still struggle with the realities of life in a fallen world. And I need freedom from that. Until there is freedom from that, I'm going to deal with suffering. But until there's freedom from that, I'm going to rest in this hope. I was saved in this hope that a better day is coming. And I don't literally mean tomorrow. I, I, it's, not an, it's not an anti-musical, all right? All right, it's, it's not that. It is, in fact, in eternity. There is the great reward. Enter in, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. It is that, it is that promise of full redemption, of bodily transformation, so that when we see Him, we shall be like He is. Paul makes it clear, the only way this is going to be hope is if it's something we don't see with our two eyes. If you can see it, you don't hope for it. If I have a bowl of ice cream in front of me, I don't hope I have a bowl of ice cream in front of me, right? Now, right here now, after saying that, I hope I have a bowl of ice cream in front of me someday, all right? So, in other words, it's only hope because it's a future, it's pointing to something that is to come. But what Paul says, this hope should do, this hope then is what creates an eager anticipation There again at the end of verse 25, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So, how do you handle then suffering? Well, like creation, we groan, but we groan in hope. We groan and we persevere. The good news, though, is that your perseverance is not a result of your own stick-to-itiveness. It's not a result of you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, as they say. It's not a matter of you just grinning and bearing it. You have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. You've got all the resources you need in order to endure whatever it is you may be facing. That is the promise of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when he says we eagerly wait with perseverance, he's not talking about just kind of holding on until good times come. He's saying I actively live in faith and obedience to Jesus Christ in spite of the suffering because I know the greater day is coming. 
This is how I think we struggle through suffering. We struggle through it knowing what is promised to us in the gospel. We keep coming back to this point, by the way, church. We keep coming, we find ourselves continuing to come back to how it all comes from understanding the gospel. Paul spent seven chapters laying out for us the reality of the gospel. Can I make a suggestion here? I think one of the reasons why suffering can be hard for a lot of folks is maybe those folks don't really understand the gospel. Maybe we don't, we don't really appreciate it exactly what has been done for us in Christ Jesus. Maybe we think maybe too much of this world. Maybe we think too much of what the world wants to offer us and not enough of what God has promised us in Christ. We allow ourselves to be distracted by the, the siren song of the culture. And we forget. We, for, we forget the greater glory that is to come. We assume all these things in this life are what produce in us satisfaction. But I'm telling you, church, what produces satisfaction in us is when, when we take our greatest source of delight and comfort in Christ Himself. Not only Christ Himself now, but then that great glory to come. As I said a few weeks ago, your bucket list wouldn't even be a garbage can in glory. The greatest things you could think you could do in this life, they're not worth your time in heaven. I know that's hard to imagine, isn't it? Because you think there's a lot of great things out there. There's a lot of great experiences. There's a lot of great events. There's a lot of great things I'd like to see happen. And maybe even in the midst of our suffering, this is where we get skewed. We think that suffering should be an aberration and that otherwise we should be facing really happy and abundant times because Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Maybe we don't really understand what he's talking about. Maybe the abundance of life is not found in the abundance of material possessions and this kind of worldly sense of security and prosperity. Maybe the abundance is found in knowing no matter how much pain I may suffer, Christ is still my Savior, God is still on His throne, and heaven is still going to be my forever home. So as we have a time this morning where we respond then to His Word, Maybe some of you here today are going through some kind of suffering. My encouragement to you is to do just what Paul said. Maybe you need to groan. Maybe in prayer you're honest with God about what is your dissatisfaction. Stop trying to hide that. There's no sense in hiding it, by the way. Pretty sure God knows about whatever's going on in your heart, right? No sense in covering that up. Trying to make Him believe something you know is not true in your heart. So be honest about the reality of the pain. Then also commit yourself in hope perseverance, the Spirit is in you, enabling you to endure through whatever the trial may be. Maybe you'd want to come and pray here. Maybe you'd want me to pray with you. Certainly pray where you are. The good news is that there's a greater glory to come, no matter what it is you may be facing. Of course, I'd also make an appeal to some, if there's anybody here who does not know Christ as Savior, I've got bad news. Bad news is this is your best life. This is, this, it's never going to get any better. It's never going to get any better. This is it. This is it. And that the day that you die is the day that you are then separated for eternity from God Himself. But it doesn't have to be that way. God in His goodness has provided a way where you can have your sins forgiven, fellowship with Him, 
and eternity guaranteed, and it's found in Christ. Confess that you're a sinner. Confess Jesus died for you and rose again. Ask God to save you based on what Christ and Christ alone has done. Place your faith in Christ, and you can be saved today. If that's what needs to happen, and you'd like to talk with me about that, I'll be down front. Would love an opportunity to do that. After the service, I'll, I'll be in the vestibule and uh, would love an opportunity to talk with you more if you'd like to just talk personally about it. And how would God want you to respond to His Word as we sing together this morning another great song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And things of earth grow strange dim in the light of His glory and grace. What a response to the word that we've heard from Romans this morning. Let's stand together and I'll pray. And after I pray, then we will sing together. Father God, we do thank you for your word and, and grateful that we could come together and again, glory in the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ and in the means by which you've made us right and, and even given us this ability to worship you in the first place. And and we acknowledge the, the pain of, of suffering, the realities that we face. We're grateful for the first fruits of Your Spirit. We're grateful of the promise to come. And so God, we just commit ourselves to how You, by Your Spirit, will bring Your Word to bear on our lives and that, that we would then just bear that in faith and obedience to You, that we might be faithful in such a way that brings You glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.